A very good morning. This is On the Record on News Talk. Kieran Goodhue with you until one o'clock. If you want to contact the programme, you can do so in the usual ways, 53106. That will cost you 30 cent. Or you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Goodhue. We have lots coming up over the next two hours. But as always, we'll kick things off with a look at the Sunday newspapers. At the panel in studio today, Jennifer Bray, Deputy Political Editor with the Times Ireland Edition. Eddie Hobbs, Financial Advisor and author of Rip Off Republic. And the more recently, The Pivot. Tom Malloy, former Business Editor of the Irish Independent and now Director of Public Affairs and Communications at Trinity College. You're all very welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, just to run through the front pages for people at home who haven't seen them yet. Uh, the Sunday Independent lead with Avoid the British, Ministers Warned. Uh, this is a story about apparently since uh, the doll resumed after the summer recess uh, that there was a lot of unsolicited contact from UK ministers to their Irish counterparts. So there has been a warning to cabinet ministers uh, not to return the calls or screen them. Don't answer whatever you do. Uh, the Sunday Independent as well on the front page. Healy Ray, Fianna Fáil minority government on the cards. Michael Healy Ray suggesting there's no need possibly for a general election instead. You could just uh, swap seats, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and move to opposite sides of Leinster House. Uh, the Sunday Times leads with Fine Gael called for Fianna Fáil backing to 2020. Fine Gael will not begin detailed policy talks with Fianna Fáil to review confidence and supply unless there is an understanding that the deal will go well into 2020. Uh, the Sunday Business Post uh, lead with the budget special. Uh, their analysis from Stephen Kinsella, and Michael Brennan, Hugh O'Connell and Mary Regan. They have exclusive behind-the-scenes access with Pascal Donoghue as well on all things budget and Using his uh, budget 2019 music playlist. Uh, the Irish Mail on Sunday leads with uh, Fine Gael secures Lowry's backing. Independent TD confirms call from government and says it would be unpatriotic not to pledge his support following in the steps of Noel Grealish as well who's pledged to support the government and the Sunday World leading with Panther on the Prowl uh, the Sunday World track down um, sex attacker Derek the Panther Clark that's their front page story uh, given that Brexit as you heard is the front page or the lead story should I say uh, there in our news bulletin with Adrian uh, it's worth just having a look at the front pages in the UK today the Observer leaked emails revealed DUP DUP chief ready for no deal Brexit uh, which is the story that Adrian mentioned. Uh, Theresa May has been told that the DUP leader, Arlene Foster, is ready to trigger a no-deal Brexit and regards it now as the likeliest outcome. At the Sunday Express, stand up to EU bullies, Rhys Mogg tells PM, Britain's future is at stake. And the Sunday Times, UK edition, Cabinet mutiny threatens to kill PM's Brexit. David Davis urges senior ministers to rebel. So look, we'll get to Brexit. We'll come back to Brexit in a few minutes' time. But we might start with... Um, some of the general election coverage, because as you, met, uh, you heard there, lots of, of front page stories uh, about it. Uh, Jennifer, I suppose you were probably closest to this uh, all during the week. How close did we come? To an election? Yeah. Um, hard to know. On the record. On News Talk. You are listening to On The Record. Kieran Goodhue with you until one o'clock. Jennifer Bray, Eddie Hobbs and Tom Malloy are still with me in studio. As I mentioned before the break, uh, a lot of the election coverage in the papers was precipitated uh, by Dennis Nocton's uh, resignation during the week. And there's coverage on that as well uh, in the Sunday Independent. Uh, Wayne O'Connor and Philip Ryan writing about it. Justine McCarthy in The Times as well. Broadband's rollout. Rollout cost the taxpayers already 18 million. Uh, lobbyists donating to politicians to get FaceTime. Mark Tighe is writing in the Sunday Times as well. Um, and in the Business Post, Jack Horgan Jones and Hugh O'Connell pressure grows for investigation into state's second ENET contract. So, a uh, further controversy here. Uh, the issue, Jennifer, at what point? Because the timeline of this I really found interesting because Leo Varadkar actually happened to be on News Talk on Thursday morning mm. expressing confidence in Dennis Nocton. Uh, at this stage, he knew about the first meeting that had come, or the, the lunch, the 37 euro lunch. 
he had found out the night before about a private meeting in the house that Pat mm. Breen had organised. Uh, he still expressed confidence in him and then lost confidence when he found out about three more meetings, three more private meetings. So private meetings are OK as long as there's not too many of them. Mm. I don't know how many dinners are too many dinners. One dinner is too many, in my opinion, uh, in this circumstance. I think what happened was he was given some details uh, the previous night. Uh, got a phone call then I think perhaps after he was on News Talk saying oh actually I just uh, this is the Taoiseach's words actually I just remembered that there were three other dinners and at that point I think Varadkar probably took the decision that not only are the optics bad they're awful Um, so I'll just paint a picture for you though it was really interesting at the week uh, during the week the Charlton report had just dropped it was midday we were all sat down with it on the press Jennifer, gallery. Jennifer, don't start me on the fact that I read it all for Ivan. I saw your tweet oh, and I was on. in the exact same position. <laughs> That's why I liked it. And um, so, I, I, yeah, we were all reading that. So many of the uh, Paul Corps actually weren't out in the gallery. So we saw him on the monitors, whatever, keeping an eye on it. And he's going through his speech and I kind of glanced at it and said, oh, God, he seems very angry. And next of all, he kind of dropped this bombshell. Nobody was expecting it. The only people who knew about it were the Taoiseach. Nocton and their very close confidants. I mean, up in the gallery, I think some of his staff were seeing kind of very, very upset looking down. So obviously they knew. So it was really, really shocking what happened. But it's it's interesting what will happen from now is that we read in today's Sunday Times that Fianna Fáil want to discuss um, inviting former bidders back into the national broadband plan as part of their confidence and supply talks. This would basically mean that Richard Bruton would have to agree to ditch the entire process so far that would involve an admission that it has been compromised. But I think the universal political view is it absolutely has been contaminated. Eddie, is it wrong in any sense for the, the, the I suppose, the head of a, a bidding consortium to be meeting the minister at all? Well, I mean, the... Um, once, once the tender is out there, should there be kind of clear well, lines of demarcation? Well, firstly, when you, when, when you hear, and I totally accept it, uh, that, that this thing is now going to be politicised, uh, you know, a major procuration contract is going to be politicised. Once it goes to the, into that pack of jokers, you know, uh, then really the, the the victims behind all this, the people that don't have the broadband, all of the lack of economic development in rural Ireland is going to be sacrificed to the political theatre that I've been talking about since I got out of the programme this morning, right? And, uh, uh, and th- that's a real concern, but it's almost as if it can't be stopped now at this stage. But to answer your question, of course not. We've had this in the past and um, a, a, a government minister has to be like Caesar's wife, you know, above reproach. And the idea of having private dinners with the with the head of a consortium, you know, in this day and age, really, you know, somebody like Dennis Norton should know that it's completely off the pitch. You know, and the risks that he mm. was taking were enormous. Um, and but unfortunately, uh, we talk the game of good governance with with uh, with the Standard and Public Office Commission and so on. But the reality is different. The culture hasn't changed when you see somebody of the calibre of Dennis Norton and with his with his reputation for probity getting caught like this, you really do worry about the standards that are happening beneath him. And the idea and, and I think that the political system has wanted to move on beyond this because uh, I mean if if we start getting into really good governance and the exam and the examining of ethics, proper examination of ethics, I think a lot of um, politicians would be, you know, pulling down the bunkers and running for cover. Yeah, uh, circling the wagons they're, maybe. Is yeah, well, they're hoping let, let the Gardaí do. Let's, one of let's those get beyond this, you know, as quickly as possible is, is the view, I think. One of those dinners actually took place 
while arrival bitter air was still in the process. Like that's anybody who says that's OK needs their head looked at. Mm. Uh, Tom, just before we move on from, from Nocton, because I suppose it's the nature of politics that while the story might go, Nocton himself kind of becomes last week's story to a degree, even though uh, everything that happened, as Eddie said, gets kind of pulled into the political arena and it becomes politicised. But that idea that like lots of people tearing their hair out uh, listening to this story during the week were people who live a mile, two miles outside local town and, you know, only have, you know, no broadband and only a phone reception if they tilt their head the right way. Yeah, and, and, and you know what? There is a solution. Um, and it's a pretty easy solution. We should have done it back in the 90s and it's what's done in many parts of Europe. You have a local referendum, parish by parish. You say to people, do you want broadband? If you do, you're going to have to pay the cost. If 80% of people vote for it, you give them broadband, but they pay for it. And people do tend to vote for broadband because they know that the value of their house will collapse if they're in an area without broadband. So really, you know, this is what we should have done. Whenever you hear the word national strategy in a sentence, you've really got to worry. And we've had a national strategy on this for 20 years. It's clearly failed. It's time to try something completely different. I, I can just visualise the thousands outside the doll with the placards up saying broadband is a human right, you know. Oh, yeah. It's of it, but yeah. it's a right that people... Someone I can already have to see pay Richard Burton's action plan for yeah. broadband. He loves his action plans. He does love his action plans. Uh, he loves announcing yeah. them, Jennifer. You'll be at 10 different announcements I, of uh, the a 10 different announcements for, uh, for broadband. Yep, in there. Uh, look, uh, I want to move on, actually, if I can, to, to Brexit, because it is the front page story in some of the papers. I mentioned the UK papers, just to remind people at home mm. if they're listening. Sunday Times, uh, this is the UK edition, Cabinet Mutiny Threatens to Kill PM's Brexit. David Davis, Jacob Rees-Mogg is on the front page of the Express, talking about standing up to EU bullies. Uh, but the Observer, this is the one that our own news is leading with today, the story. Uh, leaked emails reveal DUP chief ready for no-deal Brexit. Theresa May has been told that the DUP leader, Arlene Foster, is ready to trigger a no-deal Brexit. She now regards it as the likeliest uh, outcome following a hostile and difficult exchange with Michel Barnier in Europe. Try and put a kind of a positive spin on this, Tom. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're sniggering, Jennifer. <laughs> Sorry, Tom is being tasked with putting but, positive spins yeah, on everything today. I mean, he's just a cheery person. I just, that's why I I'm naturally moved towards him. Well, he's not going to do that for Brexit. I mean, I tell you what I think. But is it, here's, can I, here's what's clear. Okay. Yeah. It's very hard to tell what's going to happen next week or next month, but it's very easy to tell what's going to happen in two years' time, often. Hmm. The reality is I think we already have a hard Brexit, and all the headlines in the paper show it. Whatever happens, whatever fudge is agreed in November or December or January or February, the relationship between Britain and the rest of Europe has been fractured in a way that is historically important and really quite worrying. We'll find, you know, let's not forget, when we had our own bailout, the British stumped up quite a lot of money. You know, it'll be interesting to see when Italy is bailed out in a few years' time, whether Britain will still be stumping up money then. It'll be interesting to see what happens to the defence umbrella that you know does quite a lot to keep Europe safe and that Britain is a fairly important part of. We, 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 we have a hard Brexit, and, and it's, it's actually terrifying. And it's going to be very, you know, there, there's a lot of xenophobia running rife in Britain at the mm. moment. It's going to be hard for our farmers to sell stuff there. It's going to be hard for other people to sell stuff there. Relationships that have lasted for hundreds of years are breaking down now, and that's happened and, and the bad will that we see on both sides, you know, it's it's like a, an awful divorce. You know, it's pointless pointing fingers at this stage and saying so-and-so is to blame. We as a country have to think, what are we going to do next? Eddie, hmm. is there a danger that we've focused then too much on the border and the idea of the backstop in the sense that let's say if there's a f some sort of fudge whereby the customs line is drawn down through the Irish Sea. Now, forget about machinations of 
EU po- UK politics uh, and the DUP and all that. Let's say that that's the fudge and that there's that there's no hard border between North and South, that that will be sold as a victory of sorts. You can imagine that absolutely would be the spin that, you know what I mean? We've avoided a hard border on the island of Ireland, but there's still going to be customs checks. There's still going to be barriers to trade between Ireland and the UK that that will be spun, as I said, as victory, but it's economically disastrous still. Well, there's no there's no value in a Brexit to us at all. It's just all downside. In the short term, at least, it's very, very disruptive. In the medium to long term, depending on what we do as a country, and I mean their private sector in particular, how we react to the opportunities that it's going to create as well. Because you know we will be in a we will be in a strategic position in Europe. Okay, shorn of our British neighbours around the negotiating tables in the EU, but we'll certainly be in a very strong position for foreign direct investment, mobile capital for entrepreneurs, and, and so on. Um, because um, Britain will be giving up so much of its uh, of its capital in Europe to others, including to ourselves within uh, within it. But I think, I mean, just 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 to pick up something Tom said. I mean, the British did lend us money, but if I recall, they charged us six percent, right? So I mean, they were making money and they were lending to a distressed uh, debtor, but they got a good return on it, and mm. they got they got it several times the market rate of return. I think that. Um, Cameron is going to go down in history as making one of the greatest blunders ever made by a modern statesman in allowing a simple majority vote on such a significant issue because no matter what happens, uh, it's it's going to create huge divisions within Britain itself. I think it's binary. I mean, they're either going to stay in, or you might call it something else, but it will be a stay in type of formula mm. or they'll crash out. And that anything that you sell in between will, is just not going to get through the British political system yeah. as it's as it's, as it's as it's constructed at the moment for us it's going to be hugely disruptive I, I don't think we're really able to measure the disruption until we actually go through it but we will come through it and we will benefit from it if we organize ourselves properly afterwards in my opinion Tom can we organize ourselves in such a way that in the immediate to medium to long term I, I, I don't know. I mean, Eddie's right about you know the potential for foreign direct investment. There's also great potential for things like research and innovation, mm. universities. But it's not happening. You know, it hasn't happened. We haven't uh, made the great strategic pivot that you might expect to to put ourselves in a position to really benefit and to attract that. I mean, there hasn't been the influx that was predicted two years ago, and we've only got a few months left. Uh, but, but, but I think, but there is a longer term thing, of course. Over the next few years, we can we can reinvent ourselves if we if we really choose. But Tom, to. a lot of a lot of a lot of foreign direct investment firms, like for example, Japanese manufacture, car manufacturers in Britain, um, are saying, "Well, we have these plans, but we, we haven't we haven't pulled the trigger yet because we're waiting for you to pull the trigger before we yeah. pull ours." And I think that's the issue. It's not until it's done that we'll see the changes. Well, obviously, one, one hopes so, but mm. the reality is that Europe is pivoting. Uh, eastwards, you know that 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 we are now an island on the, the kind of the western edge of Europe with a big block of non-EU in between. You know, we, we the whole of Europe has been pivoting eastwards for a long time, and uh, no, I, I I think we we really need to do a lot if we're to to exploit benefit of Brexit to our advantage. Jennifer, to to drag this back into the sordid world of politics for a moment. Yeah. Am I reading too much into this to think that uh, um, Arlene Foster and Nigel Dodds and others are very active in the media in the last couple of weeks to talk about blood red lines and, you know, we're prepared for a no deal and all this type of thing. And if you imagine that Brexit negotiations are kind of going the way you want, that's mm. not really the tactic that you're going to take. Is it, is it, does it make sense to 
uh, to read into that that their fear is that it's getting increasingly likely that Theresa May is going to call their bluff and that she's going to place that customs line down through the Irish Sea. Oh, absolutely. That is definitely their fear. And I think we've seen reports during the week um, in the, the London Times that that is actually something she is considering. And it's interesting what Tom was saying about, for example, a hard Brexit, like every kind of Brexit is hard. Um, and, and the issue here is a no deal Brexit. So we see in the Observer today, the DUP talking about, you know, them. they're saying they're ready for a no deal Brexit, but they're not exactly covering themselves in glory because they might be ready for a no deal Brexit. Ireland is not ready for a no deal. And that includes Northern Ireland. Mm. The UK is not ready for no, nobody is ready for a no deal Brexit. Um, and I think what we'll see hopefully maybe this week is the UK revealing their intentions in terms of this most contentious issue, which is the backstop. And obviously the UK want it to be time specified so that they don't leave themselves open to accusations that we're going to remain in a, a customs union forever. But obviously that is a EU red line. It must, it cannot be time specified because therefore it's not a backstop. Mm. Um, and the, the, the main obstacle in Theresa May's way is Arlene Foster. It's just the issue of the budget in the UK. Do you pack this all till after the budget? Get your votes through, but you already see the DUP threatening not to pass that. So I'd say it would get to the stage where somebody's bluff will have to be called, whether it's the EU, the DUP or indeed the cabinet in the UK. Yeah, or there's plenty of people in Labour, including Labour leadership, uh, mm. who, who are in favour of Brexit. You but know. they haven't been exactly clear on their position. We don't really know because exactly what they Because they don't want to scare away a lot of Labour voters who are not in favour well, of Brexit. that's not great political leadership, is it? No, but Take I guess... Take a stance and stick with it. Uh, but I guess unless you're going to the polls for a general election, you get away with it. Mm, maybe. I don't know. I'm not too sure. I just wish somebody would make up their mind because this has just been going on for so long. I don't. I feel like I can't write the word backstop one more time in my copy. I feel like I'm talking about it in my sleep. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like you need a holiday. Too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. You could just use BS as an acronym for it, maybe, and it could have a, a, a double meaning. Uh, Eddie's favourite word. Uh, I'll write your columns for you. Can do my job. We're going to chat like about fire, uh, okay. We're going to chat about charging after the quick break. On the record. On News Talk. You are listening to On the Record. Kieran Cuddihy with you until one o'clock. Five three one o six for your text that'll cost you thirty cent. Or you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Cuddihy. Jennifer Bray, Tom Malloy, and Eddie Hobbs are still with me in studio. I mentioned we want to talk about um, Charlton and the Disclosures Tribunal report. Uh, and before we talk about culture, I just want to read this quote, uh, Jennifer, and put it to you. It seems that our public life is now being dominated by spin, and that plain speaking is elided in favour of meaningless public relations speak. This is a hideous development in Irish public life. More than one person pointing out that he kind of undermined himself by using the word elided in that oh, sentence. Yeah, so yeah, a lot of people have to look it up. A lot of words <laughs> to look up. Uh, uh, but, but just on that note, because a lot of people are kind of focusing in on it as well, that uh, that I suppose plain speaking is becoming a endangered species. I cheered when I saw that line. I just felt like he defined the last 10 years of my life. I was like, that's exactly what I've had to do for 10 years as a journalist, is especially in politics, is this sort of garbled talk, sort of parables and sort of PR speak that you hear all the time. And it does no good for Irish society. It does us no favours to hear that. And we deserve more, actually, than PR speak. Um, so I thought that was actually brilliant. And I, I am totally in agreement. And I felt like walking is down... Is Leo not a plain speaker? Leo is not a plain speaker. Leo says he's a plain speaker, but he thinks very, very carefully about what he says before he says it, which to me is not like plain speaking as such but I wanted to take that quote and print it and walk around the doll with it over my head next time anyone approached me just speak in plain English and don't give me all your pure spin but it is I, th- I think the, the and you would know better because you've read the entire report obviously 
Well, yeah, I read, I read the guts of it, yeah. The guts of it, as much as you can. I know as some parts of it were very, very difficult to digest. But there is a lot of criticism that these uh, tribunals are ineffective. They don't get anyone anywhere. But uh, Charlton addressed it in the report saying that, you know, the difference between a uh, tribunal and a court case and how he, the scope is much wider, how you can actually get to the truth. And to be fair to him, I think that's exactly what he did. And he didn't pull any punches. Uh, Tom, just on this idea of the communications, you're in role of communications now. You're, you're guilty of this. Spinning. Well, it's always amusing to see a lawyer or a judge talk about plain speaking, isn't it? <laughs> But um, <laughs> yes, I mean, we should all we should all struggle to 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 speak more more plainly. It's 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 a curse of modern life. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I, I don't think really it's it's the PR industry as as a whole. I think the PR industry actually spends a lot of time trying to get their, their clients, you know, the people they represent, to talk in a way that that you know that can engage with other people. I mean, and that's actually one of the main jobs of a good PR person, a public relations person, a communications person, is to strip away the jargon to explain it and to, to create a, a real debate. Can I just say in my role as uh, the, the studio's optimist today or the Pollyanna, <laughs> I, I, I thought Charlton was actually quite a happy ending. I think the right people have been praised and vindicated. I think Sergeant McCabe you know, stands out, but also people like Francis Fitzgerald, for whom it's impossible not to have a lot of admiration, you know, have also been vindicated and, and, and the bad people have been called out. Uh, now the test for us as a society is what do we do? Why is Sergeant McCabe not promoted? Why is he not an Inspector McCabe at this stage with everything that we know and everything that he's done to help the Guardie reform yeah. itself? You know, why are some of the other people not sacked? It's, it really is. Uh, it, we, 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 this has been a very good uh, week for Irish democracy. And I think one of the nice things about our country is that we're small enough that people who lie get found out. Is the test, you say the test is for society, is the test not for the guards? Because, it, like, the issue about why he's not promoted or why these things happen, and uh, Charlton talks about it a lot, is the culture. It's not structures, it's, mm. it's culture, which is the attitude, it's the mentality within the organisation. And you don't, Irish culture has changed in 20 years, 30 years, but it hasn't changed because people outside Ireland told it to change. It's changed because people within Ireland agitated for change and then that movement grew. And like if you kind of transpose that model into the Gardaí, it's not for us, it's for the guards. It's for someone or people or organisations, whether it's AGSI or the GRA or Drew Harris or individual guards, to actually agitate for that change, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think you're right, Kieran. I think it is. It, ultimately, it's... it's. But, but the Gardaí are, are, are part of society, aren't they? And we, we all make demands, we all deal with the guards from time to time. Um, you know, they, 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 they're very reflective of society. I think the Guardia are reflective of Ireland of 25 years ago, the nod and the wink culture that, that, that used to be prevalent but isn't that prevalent anymore. Uh, we, all, we all have some kind of duty there. Maybe we need to make it into a, a political issue, but, well, but this, something needs to happen. This was quite recent, in fairness, the nod and mm. wink culture. Like, that's recent, recent past. The, the interactions that were described between Martin Callan and various oh, journalists, oh, oh, controller oh, oh. and auditor general. No, this, no what I meant was the guards are in a, in a time warp that, that mm. we all operated like that 30 years ago, but we don't now as a society operate like that. Mm. But the Guardi have managed to resist or reform, destroy anyone who wanted to reform them over the years. I mean, Alan Shatter's another victim of the Guardi, let's face it. And, uh, you know, the, 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 they, they've insulated themselves from the changes in society. And, and therefore remained kind of old-fashioned, really. 
Eddie, well, I don't, I don't think I just don't think it's a guard issue. I, I think it's a much broader issue okay. for us. I mean, we I think the Charlton report was a breath of fresh air. I think that it really came across as a breath of fresh air. Uh, he he really took out the surgical knife and went through all of the layers of of the layers around what I call the deep state. The Gardaí are part of that. We have to remember that when we started to get out of the austerity period, first to the trough were the Gardaí unions looking for their share of the cake. Most of the first cash that became available went into that area. They bypassed the machinery of negotiation and just threatened the mm. government, threatened the government for their money and got it at a time when the Gardaí were being led by the same management that Charlton has very wrongly criticised in his report. And we've known this. Like, let's face it. Yeah. We, we've known this. We, we just allow it to happen. Uh, and, um, uh, the, you know, there was a, a very good writing done by a guy called Manker Olson some years ago. And he described, how, you know, the rise and fall of nations, how uh, nations like Ireland can become captive to inside organised groups with no accountability and who extract a premium out of the pot of money for themselves and just continue to maintain that. And and that's what we've got. And it's not just the Gardaí. I wish it was. But it's the health system as well. No matter how much money we throw into it, we keep getting negative outcomes. Mm. And that's going to continue on until such time as we face the fact that our, the management that we've got across many parts of our public services is shocking. It, if we stick with the Gardaí, like, is there a culture then, if you broaden it to Irish culture... Th- that culture of 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 allowing the guards to do this or allowing that to that uh, to persist, whereby they can, I suppose can hold the state ransom to a degree, and certainly did over that that uh, overtime pay and everything a couple of years ago. Uh, that that's born here out of our history and the border and kind of national security, that there was a sense that the Gardaí had a very difficult job here and that there were forces within the state who wanted to undermine them, who, you know, physically wished them harm. And it meant that a culture grew up that we haven't really shaken off. Is that what you're saying? That that, that culture that exists in society, we haven't shaken off, that really they're above reproach? Well, it's I, what I'm saying is that it, it's not just the Gardaí are above reproach. The management of our public services is above reproach. Okay, we've had to we've had to go through a bloody tribunal, right, to get to get behind this. Uh, but but it's not just the Gardaí. Gardaí. It's it's also the health the the, the, the health section uh, the health sector. When you look at the housing crisis, there's a lot of theatre about it every day in the newspapers. But on the ground, the the local local authorities are not doing what they're supposed to do in terms of dealing with their requirements to reach targets to make available social housing units, including taking and refurbishing stuff in the private sector. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of this. There's only three or four uh, local councils that are actually up to speed. The rest are s- sitting on their hands. And and that's the way we... we that's the way we manage things. You mm. know, we wait until there's a crisis and then suddenly everybody starts to react to it instead of having a collegiate political system that works together to solve these problems in an organised way like they do in many Northern European countries. Tom, uh, I'm going to uh, beat back your relentless positivity this morning. <laughs> uh, but uh, in terms of the Gardaí, I'll tell you what depressed me a little bit was I was listening to Jim O'Callaghan on, on Friday morning talking about Charlton and he focused in on the fact that in the report Charlton 
points out that huge amounts of, of our Gardaí do really sterling work, that it mm. starts as a career and it becomes a vocation. And, and Jim O'Callaghan's taken it was, look, you know, the majority of guards are out there doing great work. This is just a few kind of small issues and the, the bad apples argument. But when I read the report, that's not what I took from it. What I took from it was all these guards who do great work and run towards danger when the rest of it are running away from it are the same people who, when things go wrong, circle the wagons and don't want you to know about it. That it's not, this isn't bad apples. And the idea that it is bad apples is part uh, is part of the problem. That it's a kind of, let's not criticise rank and file Gardee, let's just kind of imply that this is a few bad apples when actually it's all of them. Even the good ones. When things go wrong, they don't want to know about it. Because that's yeah. what culture is. Culture isn't a couple of people. Culture is an idea that exists in everyone's head. Well, it is just startling, isn't it, that so few people have stood up and praised McCabe from, from within the force. And it's it's really quite quite shocking with everything mm. that we now know. Um, I, th- I think you, you were bang on, Kieran, when you said that, that our recent history explains why why the guards have resisted and been able to resist reform so long, and, and, and I do think that's changing. I think I think to have a judge, uh, you know, talk, uh, uh, issue the report that he issued, and then you know the, the side swipes that he took when he was launching the report, and he's quite right. You never see a guard policing a cycle lane. In fact, you know, a couple of years ago, I remember the the, the guards met in Kilkenny for their annual meeting, and they actually criticised the government for saying that they shouldn't be forced to enforce traffic laws as if traffic laws were trivial when hundreds of people die on our roads every year. Far more die on our roads than, you know, you know they, they're out of control often. But, but, but I think what, what Jimmy Callaghan was trying to say is, and surely this is all of our experiences, that individual guards can often be very diligent, very hardworking. It's when they get together, and, and, and clearly they're badly led, uh, when they get to, badly led by their own unions as well as by um, uh, by by the, the the people at the, the top brass. Um, well, I think they're brilliantly led myself because they've been managed to extract a premium out of the private sector for generations that have never been challenged. I mean, we're looking at rates of pay that are forty percent more than the private sector. We have seven percent of workers in the private sector of a pension. Imagine seven percent, ninety three percent of none, a hundred percent in the public sector. So there's a huge extraction of wealth going from one to the other. And then when these things erupt, we, we trot out the GTN argument. It's, a ver- it's very prevalent in RT. It just trips off the tongue, guard the teachers and nurses. What about the guard the teachers? And we all know one, and especially the nurses, we just love our nurses. And it's always the same story, it gets trotted out every single time. And we have these eruptions that we, you know, they're doing great sterling work on their own there. But we've still, but we've still got severe problems with the management of our public services across the board. That doesn't mean they shouldn't be entitled to decent pay. No, I'm not saying they shouldn't be entitled to decent pay. What I'm saying is that you cannot have a wealth transfer as we are having going across from one section to the other without creating extreme outcomes in the long term. And that's where we're heading. I mean, the, the I'm sorry to be the, 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 the harbouring of bad news, but but I mean, the retirement crisis uh, that has been long flagged is upon us. And you can add it as being greater than the health crisis and the housing crisis that we're now facing. And so, but where does that wealth come from if you're not going to transfer from the private sector to those sectors? No, I mean the, what I'm saying is that if you, if, for example, if you take the uh, if you take the retirement yeah. divide, right? Uh, the there's 155,000 workers today under the age of 65. That's 44 percent 
right, mm. um, uh, of those retired under the age of 65 on, on, in, in, in receipt of public sector pensions and they're entitled to them. Yeah. So the ratio of workers, retired workers, to workers in the public sector is two to one. Now that's regarded as the Krakatoa ratio for the destruction of a pension system that we're facing as a nation in 50 years' time, but we've already got it here. And uh, and and the 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 the, debt, the, the black hole is one hundred and fourteen and a half billion unfunded liabilities in the public mm. se- in public sector pensions, and the black hole in the social insurance fund is three hundred and thirty five billion. That's twice the national debt, and we're we're not addressing that issue each year in the budget. Well, look, I know that Tom had something incredibly positive to say about the pension time bomb but we're actually out of time ourselves <laughs> we can't get to it uh, Jennifer Bray Eddie Hobbs and Tom Malloy thanks a million for coming into us stay with us we'll be back after this quick break